Today's scripture is found in Genesis 1, 26 through 31, and I'll be reading from the ESV, hear the word of the Lord. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over it, the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, Everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. morning. Let's pray again. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we run to you this morning and give you thanks for all things. We especially want to give you thanks for this time we have together on this Lord's Day to gather together Sing praises and sit under your word. Father, may our greatest desire be you, the Son, and the Spirit. And may we not be satisfied if we seek out anything else. Father, keep our hearts from darkness. Keep our minds from wickedness. I pray that as we look into your word this morning, that you would give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, minds to understand, comprehend, and hearts to do your will. We ask these things in Jesus' name, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Anytime you open up the packaging to a new product, whether it be a coffee maker or a vacuum cleaner, 
one of the first things that you typically encounter and probably, if you're like most people, throw away is the instruction manual. But if you're a geek like me, you open it up and you try to get to know your product, right? For those who've spent any amount of time trying to go through an instruction manual, you sometimes wonder if the person or group of people who wrote it had any knowledge of the product whatsoever, right? Especially for those of you who have uh, had the misfortune of assembling anything from Ikea. Um, I think those people uh, take great pleasure in making things as confusing as possible, right? But the one who writes the manual should know the product better than anyone else. Better than anyone else, they should know what the product is, how it works, and what its purpose is. The same principle applies to us as humans, and, and when we attempt to write the manual for God's creation, we inevitably mess it up. We have been created by God and in the image of God. Therefore, He and He alone has the most intimate knowledge of His creation, what we are, how we are to live, and what our purpose is. And this information is so important that it shows up in the very first chapter of God's revelation to us. And I want to invite you this morning to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. It is our practice to, to shape our Sunday morning sermon series from books of the Bible as we work through them verse by verse. We will begin another series, another one of those new books uh, in May, and will carry us through the summer. We're going to be going through the book of Acts. The benefit of doing this is that God and His Word steer our preaching, and the content of our sermons is based off of the, the themes of the particular passage that we happen to be looking at that morning. Occasionally, we have a Sunday or two between series where we will cover something more topical. So if you are our guest this morning, we are so glad that you're here. And we, we want you to realize that this is something that is a little bit out of the ordinary for us. And so we want to invite you back at the beginning of May. Uh, we'd love to have you next week and the week after. But certainly come back in May and uh, follow with us through the book of Acts. Today's sermon is on human sexuality and the love of God. So why this topic and why now? The leadership of, of Trinity Church is working on a position paper to state our affirmation of and agreement with God's plan for human sexuality as found in His Word. And we will be making that, that paper to you available in the near future. But why now? We, the leadership, have, have been talking about the need to state our position as a church for a number of years, and we felt that the time was appropriate considering the amount of attention that has been gathering around this topic from a cultural standpoint. In 2019, the U.S. House of Representatives voted on a piece of legislation filed as H.R. 5. It passed in the House, but did not come up for a vote in the U.S. Senate. Fast forward two years, to this past February, H.R. 5 was again voted on and it passed. 
in the U.S. House, and now it sits in the U.S. Senate where it awaits a vote. H.R. 5 is also known as the Equality Act, or Equality Act. My kids always get on to me for how I say words. And upon hearing the name of the legislation alone, we may be led to think, well, who in their right mind would not be for everyone being treated equally, right? This is something that we all want. Much has been written and discussed on how this bill has a misleading title, though. See, in order to give some people rights, it would require stripping rights away from others. So here's the main problem with the so-called Equality Act. We are trying to address a theological issue with a political solution. In other words, the U.S. Congress and House is trying to edit an instruction manual God has already spoken the final word on. So we as a church have put together a a guide for you uh, to better explain H.R. 5 and to help you understand uh, all of the details of it, uh, more information than I have the ability to go through this morning. It's on our website under In Touch, and um, you'll see it there in the resources section uh, of that menu. And we encourage you to take a look, read those three articles, um, and if you have questions after reading those, we'd love to talk with you uh, later in the week or after you've had a chance uh, to look at those. Also, in the, in the very near future, we will make the position paper that, that we are working on as leadership available to all who would like to have that. But I want to be clear, this, this is not a sermon on H.R. 5. So you might wonder, why do I mention it? Here's the reason. Before sexuality is ever political, it is theological. You say that one more time. Before sexuality is ever political, it is theological. If we want to understand an issue, any issue, we first have to consider what God has to say about it. And I mentioned, I mentioned Washington's attempt to address the issue of equality because they are seemingly trying to do so apart from considering what God has to say about human sexuality. This bill is asserting that in order for equality to exist, it must happen in complete contradiction to God's plan for human sexuality. Anytime this is attempted by man, it always goes wrong. Now, I realize just how polarizing the topic of human sexuality is, and, and I want to say a few things out of the gate. The first one is this, I am a sinner saved by the grace of God through Jesus Christ alone. So I preach to you this morning, not as a perfect man, but as a man who is attempting to live faithfully before God. Also, I'm not elevating the sins of homosexuality or gender dysphoria above any other sin, and I do not believe those who practice homosexuality or are identifying as a gender other than their biological sex are worse sinners than me or you. And although these two sins are among the sins more frequently talked about and focused on, homosexuality and gender dysphoria are only a couple of sins among the broader category of sins with respect to human sexuality. So unbiblical divorce, fornication, adultery, consumption of pornography, these are all some of the things that are among this broader category of human sexuality 
and the sins that we often see under that title. And those things often affect far more than those who identify as homosexual or as struggling with their identity. So what I'm going to say today focuses on God's plan for mankind with respect to our sexuality. So so I hope it's clear that I'm not cherry-picking sins. All sexual sins, those that I just mentioned and many others, are the result of us rejecting God's plan for human sexuality. So the title I've given this sermon is Human Sexuality and the Love of God. Typically, when Christians discuss God's ideal for human sexuality, they are labeled as bigots and zealots, unloving and narrow-minded. But it's my hope this morning that we understand that truth and love are not at odds. It is possible to lovingly affirm God's standard without affirming sin in the name of love. So I'll go one step further and say that to be loving we must affirm God's standard and not affirm sin. I'll explain more of that in a moment. For those taking notes, this morning's outline is as follows. God's good plan. That's our first point. God's good plan. Our greatest problem, that will be the second point. And the third and final point will be God's grand purpose. So God's good plan, our greatest problem, and God's grand purpose. So first, God's good plan. Turn with me, if you're not already there, to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to look at verse 26 again. Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant-yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath, the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. When it comes to assessing human sexuality, the first thing we must ask is who governs man? In other words, who tells man who he is and what the plan and purpose is for his life? As we said earlier, the the inventor, the creator, usually writes the manual, or they should write the manual. He calls the shots. So in the case of humanity, God himself tells man what his plan is for his creation. Our identity is incredibly important. And the most fundamental thing about our identity is that we are made in the image of God. God has seen fit to make humanity as the crowning jewel of his creation 
in his image. Nothing else in the universe has that distinction. So what is it about us? What does it mean to be made in the image of God? It means we carry a certain dignity, and that that dignity does not come from our achievements or status, but simply because you have been made by God. Your value, your your worth is wrapped up in the fact that you have been created as an image bearer of God. Beyond the dignity we possess simply because we exist in God's image, we have a functional and relational role given to us by God. So dignity, function, and relational roles. Our functional role is that God created us to have dominion over everything else that He has created. We were built and intended to steward God's creation, not as autonomous despots bent on having it our way, but as God's representatives who rule the earth on His behalf. Alongside the functional role is the complementary relational role. We see this in verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God imprinted his image in every human being, intending for every human being to represent him. So how would more image bearers be made to fill the earth as his representatives? Look at verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. The particulars of, of this union, what we said a moment ago, was a complementary relational role. They're found one chapter later, in, in chapter 2, where the creation account, it zooms in for a closer look at what God has done when He created man and woman. So look at chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. The rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. As image bearers of God, made uniquely and distinctly male and female, God's plan for humanity to multiply and to fill the earth is fulfilled through our sexuality. If humanity tries to live according to their own plan, and if that plan deviates from God's good plan, we are in sin, and we find ourselves not being able to have fellowship with God. So, again, I'm not cherry-picking sins here and saying that homosexuality and gender dysphoria are the only ways humanity can deviate from God's good plan. A few that we've already mentioned are, are sexual relationships 
and intimacy outside of marriage, consumption of things like pornography. Here again, God as creator, he gets to say how we, his creation, should live. His world, his rules. He wrote the manual. He calls the shots. You don't have to look that hard to find examples of humanity living according to their own plans and ignoring what God has commanded with respect to human sexuality. You just turn on the TV, and whether it's the news, a, a television show, or a movie, we have example after example of mankind doing our best to rewrite the manual. And this brings up the second point for this morning, our greatest problem. What is our greatest problem? Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. It's easy to come to the conclusion that all of the objections and, and challenges to God's plan for human sexuality in our day are a new thing, but our rebellion against God's plan is well documented in all of Scripture. Before we look at Romans 1, remember that the first rebellion happened early on in Genesis, just following the, the two passages that we looked at a few moments ago. The first instance of God's plan for an order of creation being rejected was when Eve disregarded God's clear command, do not eat from the tree of life. All of our challenges to God's plan for human sexuality have their origins in the garden. And whether we're talking about same-sex attraction, gender dysphoria, fornication, adultery, lust, or whatever the sexual sin, all of them have their beginnings in Genesis chapter 3. Sin results from deviating from God's good plan for human sexuality, and these devi deviations result in a reordering of God's intended order. The first instance of mankind deviating from God's plan for human sexuality took place when the God-ordained roles in marriage between a man and a woman were turned on their heads. God made Adam to be the head of his wife, to sacrificially love her, to put her welfare above everyone else's, and to show her covenant faithfulness. We all know what happened, though, in Genesis 3. The roles were reversed when Satan approached Eve. He tempted her. How did he tempt her? By questioning God's command originally given to Adam. She listened to Satan while Adam stood by, and chaos ensued. The resulting curse, as we see in chapter 3, verse 16, was this, that your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Mankind's attempt to live apart from God's plan results in chaos. Anytime we try to rewrite the manual, it never goes well. One commentary puts it this way, the leadership role of the husband in the complementary relationship between husband and wife that were ordained by God before the fall have now been deeply damaged and distorted by sin. So anytime there is a reordering, you can be assured there is rebellion against God. Now let's see what Paul says about mankind deviating from God's plan in, in our resulting problem. Look at Verse 18 of Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men 
who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So there are three things that I want us to take away from verse 18. What is God's position toward our sin? What, what does it say? It's wrath. Whatever the sin, here, here general, generally described as all ungodliness and unrighteousness, God does not approve of it and is wrathful toward it. The second thing, second takeaway from this verse is that mankind is aware of their sin. We know this because we're constantly playing games with words and meanings. Just consider the, the debate over abortion. For as long as I can remember, the debate with respect to the topic of abortion is whether or not the fetus is a human, and therefore whether or not it is murder to abort it. And it hasn't been until recently that we, we've started to hear people who are so hardened by their wickedness say things like, okay, so it is a human, and I'm still comfortable ending his or her life. So, God is wrathful toward our sin. We are aware of our sin. And we know this because we play word games with our sin. And here's the third takeaway from this verse. And it fits into what I just mentioned with respect to some admitting a baby in the womb is a human and not caring. Here's the third takeaway. We suppress the truth. Every act of sin is an act of truth suppression. Whether we know something is sin and willfully do it, or we explain it away by convincing ourselves the sin is not sin, we are suppressing the truth of God. He goes on to show what this looks like in great detail. Look at verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. 
So what is man's greatest problem? Like again at verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Our greatest problem is that we have deviated from God's plan, his good plan, and because he is holy, righteous, and loving, he is wrathful towards sinners. Again, all ungodliness and and unrighteousness is in view here in Romans 1, so we're not elevating some sins above others. But notice that Paul takes care to emphasize how mankind has deviated from God's good plan for human sexuality. He painstakingly describes how mankind has twisted and perverted God's plan for human sexuality. We saw back in Genesis that the very first sin revolved around human sexuality, specifically gender roles. Here in Paul's letter to the church in Rome, he's saying that central to the discussion of mankind's greatest problem is how we view our sexuality. Is it any wonder that so much of the discussion today in the news revolves around man's deviating from God's good plan for our sexuality? We are witnessing a massive shift, a a cultural revolution in how we view human sexuality. As we've already seen, mankind deviating from God's plan for human sexuality is It's nothing new because Paul was writing about this 2,000 years ago, and you go back 2,000 years beyond that, and and we see in the early pages of Genesis this very thing being discussed. Paul mentions in verse 32 that though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. The shift that we're witnessing is wholesale endorsement and celebration of human sexuality that deviates from God's good plan. From politics to sports, from advertising to entertainment and everything in between, we're being told that not only is human sexuality that deviates from God's good plan an acceptable way to live, we're being told it is good and right and that we should celebrate it. Long gone are the days of don't ask, don't tell. What our politicians, corporations, brands, and sports teams are telling us is that we must now behold and embrace. One of the problems for the advocates of this command for us to behold and embrace is that sin is a house of cards. And because it is not undergirded by truth, it will eventually fall in on itself. So consider what's happening in women's sports. From Little League to professional women's events, you have males who are self-identifying as females. They're participating in these female athletic events, and they are destroying the competition. These men who who claim to to be women trapped inside a man's body, they, they can't cut it as men athletes, so they compete against women, and they win there. For any reasonable person, the problem here is evident. It is nonsensical to think that a man should be able to compete against women while pretending to be a woman. And yet, not only are we told this is acceptable, we're told it should be embraced and celebrated. The bill I mentioned earlier, H.R. 5, it would give legal protection to men to be able to continue to do this. 
central to Paul's charge against mankind in Romans 1, 18 to 32, is the underlying sin of idolatry. This is the foundation of man's greatest problem. Idolatry is worshiping anything or anyone other than God. And what we're witnessing and, and what has been true since Eve and Adam's sin in the garden is our insisting on removing God from his throne and instead worshiping our sexuality. Because we idolize our sexuality, sexuality, literally make it our God, gone is any inclination that our desires might be deceitful and wrong. So what is the mantra of our society? If it feels right, do it. Have you heard that? Have you felt that? We have deceived ourselves into thinking that if it feels right, it must be right. Feelings have replaced logic and reason, and we've become slaves to our feelings. In the name of love, parents are sponsoring their their children's decision to have so-called gender reassignment surgery, rather than lovingly telling them who they are because God has intentionally and specifically made them whatever their biological sex is. Is it any wonder children, or, or anyone for that matter, feel like they are something other than how God has designed them when they are bombarded by messages 24-7 from TV and the internet that tell them, if it feels right, do it. According to Sky News, Charlie Evans was born female but identified as male for nearly 10 years before detransitioning back to her God-given biological sex. Listen to what she has to say since speaking out about her reverting back to her biological sex. I'm in communication with 19 and 20-year-olds who have had full gender reassignment surgery who wish they hadn't, and their dysphoria hasn't been relieved. They don't feel better for it, and she firsthand is seeing the devastation and destruction of what happens when people follow their feelings. So just in case you didn't follow that, she, born female, identified as male for 10 years, went back to identifying as female, to her biological sex. It it caught uh, in in the media, uh, her particular case did, and um, a lot of folks reached out to her, hundreds and hundreds, according to reports. And she has just received so many of the same report over and over again, that these Young people followed their feelings, and their feelings ultimately betrayed them. So while it is true that that God gave us feelings, because we live in a sin-soaked world and because humanity is susceptible to the deceitfulness of sin, feelings can and often do betray us. If our feelings contradict God's good plan, we should not live according to those feelings. I think I've mentioned this before, but for 25 years, the marketing slogan for the soft drink Sprite was obey your thirst. Why was this such a successful slogan? Because it appeals to feelings. It was a a clever campaign that in three words summarizes our greatest problem. You know, to highlight the the absurdity of, of this way of thinking, what if someone came up to you and said, you know what, I'm really parched. And I think I'm going to 
drink some battery acid. Would you say obey your thirst? Of course not. Any loving person would say that's not a wise thing to do, right? In our suppression of truth and in replacing truth with what feels right, mankind is left exposed. Paul reveals that our greatest problem is that we are unrighteous and need the righteousness that only God can provide through His Son, Christ Jesus. I want to move to our third point because it shows us why we can't always trust feelings, especially when they run counter to God's good plan. So here's the third and final point, God's grand purpose. God's grand purpose. Flip to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 25. So Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Listen, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Paul goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 to reveal God's grand purpose for human sexuality. The grand purpose and aim of human sexuality is not to gratify our desires, but to point to Jesus and his love for his bride, the church. Let me say that one more time. The grand purpose and aim of our human sexuality is not to gratify our desires, but instead to point to Jesus and his love for his bride, which is the church. We said at the the beginning that God as creator has the authority to write the manual, right? God's world, God's rules. He clearly provides and explains his good plan. One man married to one woman. He reveals through Paul in Romans and elsewhere in the Bible how we have rebelled against that good plan by making an idol of our sexuality and Then he ties his good plan to his grand purpose, which shows us the solution to our greatest problem. God's good plan leads to God's grand purpose. And this explains why God would not ordain same-sex attraction and gender dysphoria. This explains why God calls any deviation from his plan for human sexuality sin, God's grand purpose for human sexuality was and is to bring himself glory. Marriage was meant to portray Christ's sacrificial love for the church, and Christ's love for the church is meant to reveal God's merciful love for his creation. And that's why human sexuality and the love of God are inextricably linked. Since God's good plan leads to God's grand purpose, how should we as a church, and and more broadly, how should we as Christians respond to others whose views on human sexuality 
differ from God's good plan. We mentioned at the beginning of this sermon that Christians are accused of being bigoted and narrow-minded and intolerant and loving if they support God's good plan for human sexuality. So is that true? Are we being unloving and bigoted and zealots, narrow-minded, if we stick to God's Word? A couple of thoughts on these accusations. Merely communicating God's ideal for human sexuality is not unloving. I said earlier that I would argue just the opposite. I would argue that supporting a view other than God's good plan is unloving and harmful. Here's another thing. How we communicate God's ideal for human sexuality matters. As Paul says in Colossians 4, verses 5 to 6, we are to let our speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. We should remember that disagreement isn't discrimination. And that what the world calls tolerance is not the standard for love. Lost in our cultural conversation on human sexuality is consideration for who gets to decide what is good and loving. This, this is the battleground right here. Who decides what is good and loving? Governments? Mankind? Or God? The standard of truth is determined and fixed by God. Because God is love and everything He does is loving. We as humans who are made in His image should be concerned with what He is concerned with first and foremost. So why is it necessary for us to speak truth to the world when it comes to the issue of human sexuality? Because people's souls are on the line. You don't have to turn there because I think we're going to have it on the screen, but if you've ever spent any time looking at 1 Corinthians, you no doubt have been encouraged. What we have in 1 Corinthians is Paul's Holy Spirit-inspired answers to questions from the church in Corinth. The church in Corinth was a mess, yet Paul affirmed the work that the Lord was doing there among them. There were all sorts of sin issues, but, but one of the more notable issues was the sexual sin that was rampant in the church. Paul is so encouraging to these men and women, but not at the expense of being truthful to them about their sin. He doesn't just sweep it under, under the rug and tell them everything's going to be okay. No, he speaks directly to their sin. Precisely because he speaks the truth and love to them, he can rejoice over what God has done and is doing in their midst. Listen to this passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm going to pick up in verse 9. Listen to this truth followed by love. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Do you hear that truth and love? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Listen to this. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. 
Did you catch that? Did you, did you hear what he said? And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Truth in love. Paul doesn't do one at the expense of the other. Can you imagine the, the church in Corinth saying, well, he's not being very loving. And God saying he could not be more loving. We have to be loving, and at the same time, we have to speak truth to those around us. To do anything else is unloving. Paul called out their sin. The Holy Spirit did a work in their hearts, and they were forever changed by the Lord Jesus Christ. For those who have been washed, for those who have been sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God, every area of our lives, especially our sexuality, is impacted by the Lord Jesus. So if, if you're here this morning and, and you're thinking, what do I do with my family member or friend who is struggling in this area? How do I act toward them? How can I be most loving toward them? Truth in love. We've all been impacted by some sexual sin to one degree or the other, whether ourselves or family member or friend. And there is a certain weight, heaviness that associates those folks while they're in that sin. And it can seem incredibly hopeless. Right? There's been a deviation from God's good plan. And they're not even thinking at this point about God's grand purpose. Right now, you know, if, if they're in the situation, they are in the middle of the greatest problem, right? So how do we address that? How do we help them? How do we speak to them? Well, truth in love. We take them to a passage like 1 Corinthians 6. We show them what Paul is identifying as sin. Let, and here's a word of advice. Let the Word of God speak, right? This doesn't have to come from you. This is coming from God. Open up 1 Corinthians 6 and just read it to them. Let them identify themselves in this passage. And then show them the hope that Paul shows the Corinthians. And such were some of you. Show them that they can say that, or that can be said about them. That there is hope for them. Let's pray. Father, we all have wrestled in this area of sexual sin. We have all deviated from your good plan. At one point or another, we have all said, 
as Paul says in Romans 1, 18 to 32, that we have a great problem that we cannot do anything in and of ourselves about. But there is hope because of your grand purpose. And that grand purpose being that your love would be identified and displayed in and through the life of your Son, Jesus Christ. And that in His living a perfect life and going to the cross, bearing the sins of everyone who would call on Him and Him alone for the forgiveness of their sin. All that you did in and through Adam and Eve led to that moment where Jesus took the sin of the world upon Himself. Extending hope to all who would call on Him. So, Father, may we, who are here this morning, who identify as Christians, may we submit our sexuality to You so that it lives for, or in our lives, it accomplishes the purpose that You set out. Father, help us to extend hope to those around us who are struggling in sexual sin, whether it be fornication or adultery or same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria, whatever the case, whatever, pornography, and the list goes on and on and on, whatever the case where we are deviating from your plan. Father, help us to be faithful, to speak truth and love. Father, for those in this room this morning who have never bowed the knee to King Jesus, who've never trusted in Him alone for the forgiveness of their sin, I pray today would be the day. And I, as a, a vessel, an ambassador for Christ, I extend that invitation to them and ask them to consider bowing their knee to the King humbling themselves and submitting their lives to Christ Jesus. We thank you for your love. We thank you for this life that you've given us in Christ. It's in his name we pray and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. I ask you to stand and sing in response.